0: When it comes to puppetry direction, Jacob Williams is the man of the hour. He's the other half of Lemony S. Puppet Theatre, and from a colossal mechanised gorilla to a troop of singing Blue healers, he's worked on some pretty cool stuff.
1: It doesn't matter what you're performing, whether it's a finger puppet or a giant multi-million well, dollar marionette animatronic puppet, there's that same old tussle of the technical and the emotional.
0: Join Jacob and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock, your place for puppetry arts and practitioners in Australia and abroad. My name is Alex Joy and we're continuing on with our dynamic duo of Lemony S Puppet Theatre this week with my guest, the other half of Lemony S, Jacob Williams. We are recording today on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Jacob, thank you so much for recording with us today. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Why puppets?
1: Uh, why puppets? Well, I, I know lots of puppeteers who have always loved puppets ever since they were young kids and they'd make puppets and they always dreamed of being a puppeteer, but that was never me. I, I loved the Muppets and Freckle Rock as a kid growing up with them. But growing up as a kid, I was always a theatre kid. So always doing drama classes in school, outside of school, doing shows, um, professional and amateur So I grew up right through my teenage years and school years and when I left school I went overseas and travelled for like six, seven years and stopped doing drama. Wow. It wasn't till I think I was 24 I made this short film just out of the blue for Tropfest and without even realising it, the main character was my sister's favourite soft toy at the time. So we puppeteered this character called Unboot, which is my Instagram handle. And ah. so it, unwittingly, I, I, I was making a puppet film. And then about a year later, I, I hitched up down to Tasmania and ended up staying with a friend called Lucian Simon who was running the Fringe Festival there. And he asked if I'd like to direct a play. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And then all of a sudden I had this little light bulb moment while directing this play that, oh, my God, I'm in a theatre again. This is my sort of habitat, my natural habitat, and so I, got, I started to get back into acting and making theatre. And during that process, I was asked to audition for Terrapin Puppet Theatre. Wow. And it was, it was at a little moment of my career, or my early career again with theatre, that I started not enjoying acting. And I was doing a lot of cabaret comedy work, but I, I really wasn't enjoying that work. So... I then found the puppetry, I was inside this miniature puppet booth doing this puppet show with all the lights, with all the theatrics and all the drama, all the sound, all the elements of theatre and I thought, this is amazing, but there was no focus on me and I was playing the legs of a shadow of a ballerina.
0: The legs so of a shadow of a ballerina, uh, got it, ballerina. Okay. So there's this
1: ballerina and her shadow and the shadow broke away from the ballerina because the ballerina was a diva and, she t- and the shadow turned into a monster and ripped limb by limb this ballerina and ate the ballerina. So, you know, talk about drama and the, the fantastical world that puppetry can create. And I just walked away from that experience and thinking, wow, this is awesome. And, you know, the ego of the actor, which I've been sort of not enjoying, but I could then still get all the benefits of being an actor by being a puppeteer and a hell of a lot more variety in possible roles that you can do. So I guess, in a way, that's why puppets. It just, it found me as opposed to me chasing it. And that was about 25 years ago. Mm. And it hasn't really stopped.
0: It certainly hasn't. And your career now, you're more known as a a puppetry director and quite highly sought after your career in, in puppetry has taken that directorial turn how did your work as a puppeteer and a theatre maker swing that way? I mean, apart from the Terrapin show, this has now become quite a big scale thing that you're doing. There's several things that you're up to now, Bluey's Big Play being the last, Beep and More for television. Were you always a director? Or were you always a puppeteer but from that moment that you worked at Terrapin?
1: Well, I've always been a creator. So I did a postgraduate of animaturing, which is essentially theatre making at VCA. So I would make my own work. And I, here at Lemony, as me and Sarah, we make our own work. So directing's always been a part of my skill base or creating has been a part of my, writing has been a part of my skill base. You know, I am of a ripe age and I have sort of over 20 years experience in puppetry performance. And I think just by natural kind of progression, sometimes you're asked to direct a show. And, I, and so over sort of the last sort of five, six years, I've directed, you know, one or two small independent works and then... With uh, King Kong, which I was the head puppeteer on, it sort of took a more of a directing role uh, when I was on Broadway. And Mm. so it was a sort of a natural progression to go into directing. And I do enjoy directing, but I I wouldn't say my career as a performer is quite over yet. I still have a lot of yearning to perform and still create. Um, But, yeah, there certainly does seem to be a lot of questions saying, can you direct this show?
0: I'm just in this moment driven back to the Charlie and the War Against the Grannies and I saw a cranky that you had built for that show and it created this amazing shadow reel. You say you're a creator. Where did the building side of your knowledge come from?
1: Well, I think anything, like all things in Australia, there's little training ground for such things. So I started making puppets. Once I was a puppeteer and once I wanted to start my own work, didn't have any money to pay someone so i would make the puppets so i'd learn through error how to how to make these things and it's probably the least thing i i enjoy of the process these days because i know there's so many wonderful makers out there who do wow. a much better job than myself but it's still something that i know a lot about and i think it's quite important if you are a puppeteer or a puppet director to understand the making side of things and understand the ergonomics that can come into the making process. And similarly, as as it is important for a maker to understanding performers and what the puppet needs to do, which a lot of them certainly do and try to make it ergonomic and comfortable for the puppeteers. So I think it's a lot of shared knowledge in those two areas and it certainly served my career very well because when there haven't been shows I've been able to make puppets so it's the jigsaw or pastiche of freelance work the more skills you have you know the more chance you can patch together 12 months of work per year wow
0: that's (laughs) a really interesting take on it i'm going to refer back to sarah's interview and in that interview she mentioned lemony s's mantra which she attributed to you which is you're only as good as your last show so (laughs) jacob why is that and what's your take on It's And how does it direct the way in which you make work at Lemony S?
1: Yes, I did hear that interview. And (laughs) I I, I think sometimes I just say it as a flippant remark. But actually thinking about this this question, you are only as good as your last show. And I'll give you an example. I think it always always keeps you honest and humble. Because your last show, I was doing Walking with Dinosaurs on a US stadium tour. And my last show of that tour was to 10,000 people in Tacoma. Wow. And then my next show after this was on a Rav's Queensland school tour oh. um, of a little two-hander with, with Sarah, actually, and we were performing in a corrugated tin shed with no walls, so it was open walls, to about four kids. <laughs> and, but it was as thrilling and exciting to do that performance to those four kids as it was to the 10,000 people in the stadium. So that, those four kids were just as important to receive that story we were telling them. As mm. the 10,000, so, so, you know, and, and that's a multi-million dollar show and then this one was, you know, run on a shoestring going, going to schools in rural Queensland. I think to say you're only as good as your last show prevents you from saying, from getting your, your ego getting too overblown and saying, well, like, you know, I, I don't get out of bed for 8,000 people.
0: <laughs> and on that, What are some of the principles that have come up time and time again for you as you make or break a puppetry performance? You know, what do you think are the principles that every puppetry performance needs, especially when you're making work?
1: I think with puppetry performance, there's always this sort of dichotomy of technical skill and emotional skill Mm. and and the organic kind of quality of a performance. So people and the audience believe that this puppet made out of wood, steel, whatever is alive and emoting feeling. For me, the qualities that you need to do that is 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 grace. Technical grace. Really. So so you are delivering the technical skills that puppetry requires and that you're still able to connect yourself to breath with every single moment and every single movement within that performance. And it's it's a bit of an old trope that breath is one of the core skills of puppetry, and it doesn't mean a puppet breathing Mm. and just being on stage breathing. It means so much more than that. It means that your breathing, the puppet's breathing, with every movement, with every gesture, with every sigh, with every intention that they have on stage, is always connected to your breath and that you need to be aware of that breath, aware of it to a point where you're completely oblivious to it that it's just always existing and it's always connected to your performance. And I think that does take several years to get into that mode. It's almost like as if you go into a zone when you perform as a performer, and that is the kind of the breath and time stands still. So I would say that is the, the key to really achieving excellent performance in puppetry, no matter what puppet you're using, whether it's a marionette, whether it's a Huna puppet, whether it's you know, a piece of object theatre as well.
0: I want to ask you, and keeping the idea of Your Only Good Is Your Last Show in your mind, what's a show that has stuck around in your head? What, what lives rent-free for you? What was your favourite show and why, if you can think of or recall one?
1: One that I've made or one that I've seen?
0: I'm going to say one that you've seen that you were like, that's good puppetry.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's interesting you say that's good puppetry because I never seek a puppet show. I seek a good piece of theatre. Good point. And, and I think in Lemon ES, we always, because we're, our background is theatre makers, so Sarah comes from an acting dance background and I come from an acting background, theatre making background. So the story is always elemental to my experience, but I, I do love puppetry and I love what, how puppets can tell a story, and I think so much more possibilities with puppets than actors. But with that little sort of clarification, I Sarah, I remember, spoke about a, a little piece from Minsk in Hungary, which is quite mm-hmm. topical at the moment. Yeah. At, at the very same festival, which was a festival in Potsdam, I don't remember their name. I think these chaps were from Prague in Czech. But they did a show based... Loosely based or inspired by the show Delicatessen, which was an old arthouse film, European art house film, about a hotel. I can't even remember what the movie was. I can't even remember what the show was about, really. But it was, it was the set was like this steel, steampunk, larger than life Dalek And within this structure, the little doors opened up and things popped out and and it was glove puppets, so Punch and Judy sort of traditional glove puppets. And what what sort of followed was this sort of schlock horror, almost delicatessen kind of chopping limbs and, you know, real horror kind of comedy. And it was dark and it was hilarious and the puppeteers were dressed like butchers with blood splattered across their but they, they weren't acting. They were just, that was their puppetry costume. So that's one of the things I love is when we don't hide behind the beekeeper black velvet mm-hmm. suit. That, that somehow, because we know that these, it's not all shows, of course some shows you, you hide and that helps, but I love when we see the puppeteers and that they enhance the story from a visual perspective, from a metaphorical perspective, which these guys did really, really well. But that show was just so much fun and so shocking and surprising as well. I think that is what is really lovely about theatre, especially for people who work in theatre. If you can go to a theatre piece and be surprised and say, oh, I didn't expect that or how did they do that? That is an absolute gift.
0: Beep in Mort. Is this exciting Mm. new show that is being put on for ABC for kids. It's coming after the finale of Giggle and Hoot a few years back. And it's based on the Windmill Theatre production of the same name. And it's shot in Adelaide, where you've been spending a lot of time lately. I've taken a look at the trailer and the production features so many lovely little tiny creatures. Can you tell us about the production and what's it being like to direct in the wake of COVID? But also, I guess, how it was shot and what we can expect when it comes.
1: It arrives later in this year, so it's still in the editing rooms at the moment and sound is being implanted within the action but it's pretty exciting and it was a real it was a fantastic project to work on and it really in a way harked back to you know the muppets in the sense that sets were built tangible sets were built so there was no green screen there's a little bit of blue screen for some things but 95% of what you see on the television is tactile sets in in, in a big studio in the abc studio which in Adelaide, which was standing idle for 10 years. So this was the first show in that studio for 10 years. Wow! It was interesting. I was talking to the DOP, lovely guy, Andy. I forget Andy's last name, sorry. And as they began the show, they went to some dinner of all sort of directors and DOPs who worked in Adelaide and they go, oh, you're working on the puppet show. Oof. And then slowly, it was it was a 12-week shoot. Slowly over those 12 weeks, word started to seep out that this thing was amazing and that everyone was having the best time they've ever had filming a TV show or a movie. And all, all the crew were just having a ball. And then just towards the end of wrap, there was another DOP kind of dinner. And the emphasis this time was, oh, wow, you're working on the puppet show. It'd come full circle. And... I remember when we started, everyone was really sceptical that this was going to work and they didn't understand it. They didn't understand how puppets were going to transfer on TV. And it was like, didn't they watch the Muppets Or there's so much puppetry in television or history of puppetry. But they absolutely loved it. And the DOP in particular really started thinking outside the box of how to film some of the scenes and how to trouble shoot some of, some of the scenes and the actions that were on the script. So, so that was really fantastic side of the project. And, and I guess tackling the COVID question, you know, making problem with the last two years is I tour a lot for work so, and I've got a young family, not so young, but it has been very hard to kind of manage family and work because when you travel, you get stuck. state and people can't visit and you can't fly back and go back so again with Morton Beep I was supposed to be there for six weeks and then COVID got worse and I got stuck there for 12 weeks because I was job sharing and the person job sharing couldn't come across so you know there's there's been all those pressures of of working during these COVID times but at the end of the day, it's such a wonderful project and Jonathan Oxlade, Rosemary Myers and Kay Weeks, the creative and production team from Windmill, yeah. they've just taken so much care in creating this incredible rich world full of about 30 characters and over we've filmed 20 episodes and, you know, it's just such a rich tactile world which, you know, this puppetry can deliver all inside of film studio and no location set. So that was really fantastic. You were just in the film studio, these massive sets coming in and out. And, you know, the great fun thing about television is it's very schedule-based. Yeah. So you've got so many shots you've got to deliver on the day. Sometimes you get in front, sometimes you get behind. So it's this really start work at 730 finish at 6.30 at night and it's it's, it's just concentrating the whole time, problem-solving with puppets, which is, you know, pretty intense depending on the scene. Mm. So it really was a lot of fun. And I, I think it's going to herald a kind of thinking in the TV industry that, you know, puppets are pretty great and hopefully we'll see a bit of a dawning of, these type of shows being made here in Australia.
0: It's so strange to me because we, I think we were mentioning before we started the, the record today, it's almost in the ABC's charter that they have to have a television show with puppets in it. And if we think back to the 90s when we had Liftoff and The Ferrells, and then we've got Giggle and Hoot that ran for nearly 10 years and then, you know, we were syndicating BBC's Teletubbies for a, a long time. Like there's always been puppetry in these TV mm. shows. But what do you think that attitude shift there is with the word puppet, and I asked this question of Sue Wallace when I did her interview. Where is that attitude shift from those directors and people? Is it because of ignorance that they haven't worked on a puppetry show, and thus kind of go, "Oh, that's a bit odd and obscure," or does it have a sense of that it is based and purely for kiddies? Where do you where do you think that comes from? That judgment.
1: Uh, I, I think it is the the latter that they think, "Oh, that's just for kids. It's doesn't take much skill. It's." Or, you know, it's it's a bit beyond me. I grow up, I become an adult, I stop having fun, I stop playing, you know, I make serious stuff or, or serious comedy, you know. and But I've always thought when making work, particularly adult work, that an audience is going to come in and they haven't seen puppets since they were a kid. Yeah. So they're going to come in and see this whole new world for the first time in however long and... Nine times out of ten, they are blown away. Mm. So this, sort, this ignorance, for use of a better word, I always think is to our benefit because <laughs> the impact of that show is going to be so much more. And it, over that period of one hour or two hours, however long the show is, that adult audience connects with something from their childhood, which kids instantly believe the play of puppets. And yeah. thinking of Bluey, the stage play, it's got four massive puppets on stage, life-size puppets, plus eight humans. So it's a pretty crowded stage. And one of the questions I'm often asked if I'm doing an interview about that show is, aren't the uh, humans distracting? And they're not. The kids, All the kids see is adults playing with puppets and mm. playing a game because that is the language that children use every day, play. So they just see it as a normal activity and don't take in the adults and they just go straight into the play. And an adult will see the players and then they'll just be drawn, if the puppetry is good, drawn to the puppet. And that process takes a little while longer, but by the end of the show they're completely playing along and, you know, the the suspension of disbelief is achieved and they just think it's magic.
0: Yeah, they do. Some would say that it's actually harder to write A show and direct a show that maintains a child audience's attention because their attention span is so much less than many people's, and that they are the harshest critics. Like they will literally get up and walk away if they don't like the show. How have you managed to keep your shows that you've written and produced for children and directed engaging for that audience? And would you say that it's a harder job, a harder gig to work for kids than it is for an adult show because the language and the social norms of sitting in a theatre and paying attention because you're told to are there for an adult audience?
1: Mm. I, I think most good theatre makers who make work for children probably have the same thinking about this as I do and as Sarah does for Lemony S. But whenever we make work for children or families, we always pitch it to the adults, really. And, and we don't disregard the kids because they're young, that they're silly and the work doesn't have to be good. It still has to be sophisticated mm. and it still has to tell a story. And if you can engage the adults to engage the kids, I think that is the kind of the aim. So we never dumb it down for kids. We always think, do we like this? If we're not making a work that we like, that we would watch, well, we're wasting our time.
0: Hmm. Back to even more, I'm really curious about the puppets that are being built and and what kind of puppets they are. Are they on a trigger? There's so many little kind of intricate, almost like they look like they have sometimes felted or uh, mm. like toy-like. Who made the puppets and how many different forms of manipulation were there?
1: There's quite a lot of puppets and because of COVID and time restraints, the, the build was sort of sent out to various people. So there was a main build in Adelaide and then some, some of the puppets were subcontracted to a few other makers there was a variation of different puppets. Some had kind of talking mouths with your hands up there, but with a trigger for eye blinks. Some were just rod based with triggers down below. So there was a real variety. We even snuck in a bit of shadow puppetry in the <laughs> episodes. But, uh, and some, yeah, there, there was a lot of rod based and, and a few kind of glove style puppets, mu- more Muppet style puppets. They're all made out of kind of, uh, what was it called? It's not the Muppet felt, but it is like a, it's called a silly name, like squibble or something like that.
0: Oh, there's Frazel, which gonna... is the the new kind of Antron fleece, is what I know of, um, which Scraggle. is more. I, th-
1: I think they called it mm-hmm. Scraggle. Sorry to interrupt. Scraggle. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, but it, it. It, it was kind of like a felt, but had kind of a more of a textural yeah. element to
0: it. Oh, interesting. And then coming to the idea of scale, I mean, Beep and More, when you look at it on the screen in the teaser, it's very tiny. It looks like there's almost this little mm. toy land, but I imagine that they're actually much bigger. I mean, I guess they are. Are they, are we, what are we yeah, talking well, about? That, that,
1: that, that particular shot that you saw, which is on YouTube, it's the Beep trailer. So you can get a little, or teaser, you can get a little sneak peek from that so that is the treehouse where all the characters live and that was probably eight meters tall Mm -hmm. and had three levels that you sort of platforms that you climbed up and then got into the little house and there's one particular character clem who's like this ochre australian guy who lives on this planet who knows where he's he's got this little portal and it's the most uncomfortable place you have to lie kind of flat and put your arm out like that looking the other way at the screen where you can see what you're doing stretching your hand out there so it wasn't the most comfortable of sets (laughs) but to film that particular shot they had a massive crane in the studio wow and you would have to book that crane in advance and you would get knock off all the crane shots over the 20 episodes on these crane days yeah so that was pretty fun they'd lay a big big rail down and they'd push the rail and the cr- crane would go up and zoom out or, or, or vice versa. What was great about that is the ambition of shooting this show. It wasn't just lock off the camera. It was very filmic. Mm. And, and a lot of the crew and the DAP and Rose herself from Windmill, they their previous project on Windmill Productions was a film. So there was a lot of film elements within this this uh, project and we just wanted to elevate it to a level that it was really interesting and and different angles of of shooting those puppets and travel shots which made it so much fun.
0: I want to keep on this idea of scale and I want to jump to Bluey and Bluey's big play and I've always wanted to ask this question about costume puppets and adult size Mm. people in puppets that in the animation or version of themselves, they're quite little and yes. the response that they get when they're kind of three-dimensional and tangible for young audiences to see and and play with. I've always felt a sort of disconnect with the translation and I've never really mm-hmm. understood it so much. I, I think it's a similar thing with, you know, when I see Dorothy the dinosaur or, you know, wax the Dog in the Wiggle shows. I'm curious as to working with the material that you did for Bluey and these puppets that were dancing versions of the flat 2D cartoons. How do you maintain a through line between the two kind of texts? Is it just because the characters are the same? It Does it matter for a young audience? I don't know. I've always wanted to know.
1: I think care taken to translate this particular story to the stage was essential for its success. Ludo, right. who created Bluey for television, they are so protective and rightly so of this gorgeous show and the characters and the world that they've created and the palette of colors that are translated they really wanted well we really wanted to honor their vision and one of the great things while we were creating that we had to go up and pitch this show and they were really not convinced that it was going to work but we managed to convince them and they were playing good cop bad cop at at the uh, table while we're pitching and joe brum who's the creator who draws and writes all the episodes. very laconic, laid pack quiet guy. And he just said at the end of it, well, you guys seem to know what you're doing. Go for it. And so we did. And they sent Charlie and Sam, who were the ex- executive producers, down to be with us in the room while we were making the show, which we were a little bit nervous about. Um, we felt, oh, we've got Big Brother looking at us while we create. But they were actually... Fantastic. They were quite forceful at times, but they, they were brilliant. They really opened up the world for us. As well as um, Charlie and Sam, we had Joff Bush, who is the composer for the show, composing music in the rehearsal room for the live show. The music has a real dramaturgy to the action and it's really quite precise in the show and also in the live stage show. So I think having them in the room was a real plus to translate it to the stage and making the world, Jonathan Oxlade, again, who designed Big Mort, designed Louis' big play. Wow. He thought long and hard about how do we translate this to the stage because we jump from the, the living room to the backyard, to the bedroom, back to the bedroom, to the living room, back to the bedroom. So there's all these big scene changes with this massive big set He's yeah. like, well, how are we going to achieve that? And he came up with a really great way of doing that. And literally, kids get to see Bluey's bed or, you know, Chatter Max on stage, like all the iconic elements that make the show on television were included on the stage show. And I, part of my job as being the resident director, puppetry director, I would sit in the audience and watch the show, make sure that it's tracking really well. And the amount of time you heard kids, talking to each other, saying, see, I told you, it's real. It really is real.
0: <laughs> oh, they so were delightful. just
1: convinced that it was real, despite a 22-year-old actress um, puppeteering Bluey, <laughs> who was made of felt and steel. But that's the magic of puppetry.
0: Sure is. What are you looking for in performers when you're working as a puppetry director? You know, what did that 22-year-old need to have? What are the, the skills that are transferable for the live-action stage show? in Bluey and what are you looking for when you're looking for for performers on Beep and Mort? You know, is there a transferable skill between soundstage and studio and live-action stage?
1: Well, I think puppetry for television is a very different skill. There's certainly a lot of crossover. Yeah. But with, with television, you've really got to understand the screen and the relationship of the puppet with the screen. So when you're performing on TV, as anyone who's done puppetry in television would know, that you have a monitor and that you actually never look at the puppet. You always look at the monitor and you're judging your relationship to space and action through the monitor. So you've almost got to place yourself inside the monitor. And eye focus, fixed point, all these elements, breath, again, are really important, but also a screen, you get very close to the puppets. So a lot of nuance is required and over puppeteering or, or playing what you would do to play a puppet on a stage playing to 400 people, you don't need to do that. So, yeah, so if you're puppeteering to an audience of 400, you don't need to do that with television. And so there's a lot of sort of subtle differences and nuance that you can explore with puppetry and TV and, and yeah, just just worshipping that little monitor and not looking at the puppet. And sometimes puppeteer will look at the puppet, this was one of the things I had to really convince the DAP and the directors was the idea that the puppet and fixed points, so you maintain the the legs on the ground of the puppet that you can't see and the relationship of that image within the screen. And the director said, why don't we put a plank of wood from where the puppet starts to the camera and they can just sort of judge the angle or judge where the puppet is against that piece of wood. It's like, no. No, <laughs> the, the skill is fixed point. So they've got to understand the relationship of where they exist by looking at that screen. And it took about two weeks to convince people of this. That's but that, right. that's sort of, that's an interesting kind of, you know, puppeteers will just know that. They'll just know that this is a skill that they need to do and... We had a not enough, or we had a few days rehearsal for even and more, where we were drilling these concepts with the puppeteers who hadn't done puppetry for television before. And understanding that okay, this is something that I've got to get. And I can't like you can you can sort of, you know, judge, all right, my elbow is at this person's hip, and that's giving me the fixed point. So that's a reference point if I need to reference it off something that's tangible, but really I've always just got to look at the screen and understand my relationship to space within that.
0: Hmm. So when you're auditioning, mm. you know, you're probably getting a combination of actors and people with puppetry experience, or people with voiceover experience. Who gets in?
1: Well, it's, off well, this was shot in Adelaide. So a lot of Adelaide actors were employed who had worked with Windmill before, who'd done a lot of puppetry with Windmill shows. And they had a relationship with, windmill so that was a real plus and we knew that they were great performers Mm. and so they could certainly one as actors deliver the emotional content of the performance and then it was my job to help them deliver the technical aspects of the puppetry and and within all that relationship of the screen and and fixed point you've got to then know what your body is doing and getting your body in a really comfortable position because TV puppetry can be pretty awkward. Mm-hmm. You find yourself getting into awkward positions where you're on your knees a lot of the days and your arm's up and your arm can get pretty sore. So it's, it's very helpful to have performers who have a physicality about them and if they don't have that, they'll really struggle, yeah. one with puppetry in general but also with puppetry in TV. Um, so that, that was, you know, that was something we really looked at in terms of casting, both for Bluey and for
0: Beep and Mort. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Jacob Williams. We're going to head to a break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Jacob in just a second. Want to start a conversation at your next gig or festival? Then grab your wallets because we've got merch head to our Redbubble store to get your hands on some signature One Orange Sock designs. We believe that podcasts should be advert-free. So if you like what you're listening to, there's a new way to help support our podcast. No monthly subscriptions, just a simple tip to share your kindness and to help us get by. Follow the link in the podcast notes or at oneorangestock.com to buy us a coffee. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Talking Sock. You are listening to Talking Sock with me, Alex Joy, and Jacob Williams. In the past couple of years, Jacob, (laughs) lockdowns aside, you've done a couple of films, Judy and Punch, which premiered in 2019, in which you were director of puppetry, and the upcoming Robert Connolly film Blueback, based on the Tim Winton novella of the same name. How did each of these two films use puppetry? And for me, what I want to know is what was the main difference and the effect and form of that very traditional. Punch and Judy puppet and something as yeah. wide a scale and as mechanical, I guess, as Blueback.
1: Yeah, well, I guess the, the big difference was in Judy and Punch, the puppets were actually puppets. So it was more of a story of the puppeteers, Punch and Judy, or Judy and Punch, and kind of a reckoning kind of of the um, the Me Too movement, really. Yeah. Even before the Me Too movement came out right in the heart of it and kind of saw Judy's revenge story against Punch punch and, you know, throwing off the shackles of the patriarchy. here, here. So, and in a way, the puppetry was only a very small element kind of at the beginning of the movie, but, you know, it looked beautiful and uh, Jess Knight and Danny Miller did a beautiful job creating those marionettes. So they were very traditional style marionettes and I guess what I was interested in exploring with Jess and Danny who puppeteered the marionettes in the movie was exploring, you know, different ways of using the marionettes. So, you know, really pushing the idea of they're just not walking like we see out of Thunderbirds, for example. Sure. That They can kind of swing and you can get a bit of irreverent about them where you can grab the pole, not just use the strings. And so just playing with that idea of just, just always trying to just push the elements or, you know, the form as much as you can. And, yeah, I think we managed that, how much it made to the screen and on the editing floor. It's always a mystery. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I thought it was a really rich, beautiful film and the day we filmed the actual puppet scenes was in the Spiegel tent at the uh, Circus Oz or the old Circus Oz, soon to be Circus Oz grounds again. Not sure. Really? Um, oh, gosh, I hope it is. So with a lot of Melbourne actors that... that I know and love. And actually, talking of Melbourne actors, one of the two similarities that these movies have is that they both starred Mia was I think oh. I'm saying is her name correct. So she was also in Blueback. She was oh, wonderful. the main protagonist. But with Blueback, the way they used the puppet was to represent the fish, and it was a lifelike fish. size of a Blueback, so it was it was about... Two metres long, a metre and a half to two metres long. Um, and it actually was built so it could puppeteer and swim in water. So we filmed that in a pool in a private school down in Brighton. So they turned that into the film studio for a week and built a platform outside the pool and and created sort of a blue screen walls within the pool. And wow. replicated what they'd filmed live over in WA. They did a lot of filming on set or on location in WA. And then all the fish interaction was done inside the pool and this fish, the eyes, the only CGI element of the fish were the eyes. Everything else moved, so there was just a lever for the mouth to move and it had some dorsal fins, so they were just on another sort of cable uh, lever that could just fish. And then I was controlling the movement of the whole puppet so there was this rod which extended from the top of the puppet to almost like a t-bar with two handles on it and then I just moved the t-bar back and forth which created kind of a swivel in the puppet and and made the tail move and of course you move the tail of the fish in water it actually propelled the fish so it worked like an actual fish the density of the water or, or the inertia of the water actually one, it made it was quite a heavy fish but when you put it in the water it Lost all that weight. But as soon as you started moving it and guiding it through the water, depending how vigorous and how fast and how sharp the angle, the inertia of that water was quite, quite hard and challenging. And we were kind of trapped to play around this sort of platform structure. But it was such a beautiful puppet. And it was designed by CTC, Sonny Tilders from Creature Technology Company mm. and his amazing team of makers. And what the director, Robert Conley was after and what they were so blown away by was the fact that this was a live fish, essentially, swimming with the actresses in the water. So of all the actors, there was a young eight-year-old, Mia, who was, I'm guessing, maybe early 30s, and then another older lady. Oh, there was a teenage version of the actress as well. They all learnt how to free dive. So dive holding oh. their breath. And the teenager who was 17, she was amazing. She could hold her breath for seven minutes Oof. underwater. So she really enjoyed that process. The other actresses, not, not as skilled as her as a free diver, but I think youth might have played a hand. But what was fantastic is they were swimming underneath there and they weren't completely aware of where the fish was going to go. And the way Robert directed, it, he gave us kind of what he wanted—loose action of the film or of the scene—and then just to improvise around it. So there was a lot of scenes where we were just swimming together in circles and figure eights, and I was coming up slowly to a face and pulling back and then swimming past her. So it was, and but Mia didn't really know where the fish was going to go. And, or, or the teenage girl. So it had this real live energy, this kind of frisson of action that couldn't be achieved if it was a CGI fish and they were just making it up. So that that, that sort of excitement and danger almost because at one point the, the tale would whack the actress in the face and she would react and the, and the director loved it. It's like, oh, that's awesome. And the actress would sort of, you know, cope with that and sort of swim back after it. and So it, it was really kind of exciting and it reminded me of another show I did with Arena Theatre and MTC co-production called Marlin and it was mm. the same thing. It was it was an incredible set. Um, it was this sort of swimming pool with fishing net over the edges of the swimming pool and the swimming pool was filled with bubbles. Ooh. And I had a I had a wetsuit and I was performing the marlin, which again was about two metres long. And the story centred on the fisherman, grandfather and the daughter, they catch the marlin or they steal the marlin from this fishing shed, take it back out to sea to release it. Essentially, that was the action. I was essentially caught by the side of the boat the whole time. But this was a wild animal. And the marlin has those long protruding kind of sword beak I don't know if they call them a beak, but anyway, this this fish would like the actress and the actor would go up slowly to try to caress the fish, and the fish would like flick, yeah, and, and it would make this horrendous noise against the wooden boat, and the actors would like propel themselves back, and again, the director said, "That's it. That's amazing. That's dangerous." Yeah, you know, because if in real life, if you got whacked by the swordfish, you know that could cause yep. some serious danger, and You know, that was the kind of the live action that was so successful in that show and also that we were achieving with Blueback, which, you know, the production team, Robert and his whole production team were just amazed that the puppet could do this and they were so glad they went down this avenue to get a puppet to do it as opposed to CGI. Yeah. And they were just saying, you know, we hope that this, again, propels theatre makers and movie makers to use puppets more to represent animals or represent characters. So you do get this live action.
0: I'm really curious about the manipulation of the puppet. And I guess when you're doing blueback, you're looking down from the water if you're above the water and you're using that crank kind of lever system. So you're kind of voodooing it effectively. You're looking from a distance from above while the actor is interacting with it. And I want (laughs) to... I'm very tempted to ask how it differs from something like Jaws or Deep Blue Sea where it's like these robotic, like uh, cantankerous looking, uh, you know, swimming robots. But I'm actually more curious about Voodoo and Kong and Mm. the similarities there in terms of, you know, operating from such a distance and, uh, you know, being the puppetry captain on that show. You were working with, I think there were three of you in voodoo and then several puppeteers on the stage. I'd really be curious to get your take on it. We've spoken to Danny about this as well, but I really want to know about your Mm. take on that that bat puppet as well and, and how voodoo puppetry is this sort of skill that you have.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's,
0: you know, it's interesting
1: we talk about different styles of puppetry and I was talking about breath previously. And even though you're at a great distance And even, again, with the TV puppetry where you've got to put yourself inside that screen, the same happens with the animatronic work we did with Kong. It's the same thing. Again, these puppets were made by CTC and Sunny, who built the blueback puppet. And they make puppets which are really intuitive, so they just make sense. So these puppets, the King Kong was, we had three rigs, essentially, with gaming controls on rigs that pivoted and moved forward and went up and down with springs and the movements that you did on them were transferable to the puppet on stage. The role I had, so I was the head of the team, which didn't mean I did the head per se, I actually did the body of the puppet, so the shoulders, the gross body movement up and down and forward and back. Right. And all the hands and the arms and twisted. But I also called all the action. So I had headphones and I was talking to the 11 performers on stage, syncing their action with the head and the face puppeteers beside me. So sort of the link between stage and the voodoo lounge is what we called it. But it was also, there was a particular scene where Kong was fighting a giant cobra. Yes. So you've got 11 puppeteers on stage, an actress, and then five cobra puppeteers. So what's that? 18
0: performers on a a stage
1: (laughs) with ropes going everywhere because essentially Kong was a marionette puppet. Yeah. Animatronic components. The snake was a pure marionette puppet and then sometimes they directly manipulated by grabbing hold of the body and twisting the body. But So there's this, you know, dance going on between all the puppeteers and I'm calling particular cues throughout that scene to a time code which would link up all the performers, calling cues for the snakes, calling cues for the Kong face and head puppeteer, but also to the time code, calling cues for the stage manager to then fire off at some other cues and then calling cues for the musical director downstairs under the stage so they could go on to this sort of phrase of music. So it was this amazing wow. kind of zen-like kind of scene where so much chaos was happening but it had to be precise. One time the time code went down, completely stopped. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and the stage manager says, oh, no. He might have said something more than no, something more colorful. <laughs> time goes down, time goes down, what are we going to do? And by this stage I'd done the show 600 times. so it's like, don't worry, I'll do it. We'll just, we'll just do it without the time code. Strap on people, let's go. Yeah. And, of course, everyone knew the movements, and after after you've done hundred shows, the person calling is really just a security blanket for the performers to know, yep, yeah, everything's everything's good. But sure, um, what was the question? It was something about. <laughs>
0: Well, I guess I'm so yeah, into right. the story now. I'm so, but you know, you've basically got two books to call this show. But I guess it, this idea of this particular skill of being disassociated from the puppet and yes. and yet still having that connection of breath and these foundations or principles that you kind of have mentioned before, how that is becoming and transforming puppetry. You know, this idea of the voodoo uh, puppeteer being able to create more nuance while being further away. Uh, right. and, and I, I wanted to draw uh, comparisons between the two, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I guess, again, like it doesn't matter w- what you're performing, whether it's a finger puppet or the giant multi-million dollar marionette animatronic puppet, there's that same old tussle of the technical and, and, and the emotional. Yeah. And being able to sit outside both of those elements but sit inside both those elements simultaneously. I used to sort of... Talk to the King's Company, who are the puppeteers on stage, yes, and saying, Really, what we're wanting is to be Jedi Masters.
0: Oh, this, I'm so into that
1: <laughs> in this sort of world, and where things are just we're just communicating seamlessly without words and just through practice and rehearsal and drilling. And that's that's, I think, a big part of puppetry is just continual drilling and manipulating the same puppet that you're working on. And if I could jump segue to the lab that we're about to start, what I'm excited about that is giving the opportunity for people to work with puppets every day. We're doing it once a week, but I expect them to be just working constantly with puppets, because if you look at a dancer, they'll go to dance school. They'll dance every day for 10 years. Actors go to drama school. They'll act every day for their three-year term. There isn't that for puppetry at the
0: moment. No.
1: So and I, one of my early experiences was going on a seven-month tour where I got to perform every day for seven months. And I remember there was a little break in this tour for about three weeks, right in the middle. When I came back, it was like a penny dropped and we just found so much more movement in the puppet, so much more nuance, that it just clicked into another gear of performance, almost like going into that zone of when breath and the technical all just sort of intertwined and became... Language. Uh, just, yeah, it became language. It, it was You didn't have to try. It was just seamless. Yeah. So uh, I think it's that repetition... Of just sitting in that world and sitting in that practice, which certainly, when you do a show six hundred times like we did with Kong, it certainly helps with that performance skill and level, almost to the point where you're thinking six hundred's enough now. Let's stop.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, the idea of also just being able to do it with other people. I think the difference from a lot of puppeteers is that you know if they're not on a show, they're working solo. And to have a space in which you're basically creating a puppeteer's dance class or a puppeteer's drama class that is regular and has performance outcomes, that's, I think, there's nothing better for a puppeteer than to work towards something, a goal, a common, you know, because we could a dead- a sit around and waggle dog- dollies all, way, all day, you know. Sorry, what was that?
1: Yeah, oh, I was just saying a deadline is a wonderful
0: thing. It really is. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in that sense, it's also contributing to an economy of work, and uh, that, you know, that there are performance outcomes and it's generating spaces where we can work towards these deadlines and these goals. Oh my God, that's so exciting. I, before we move into the lab, though, how did the American Broadway adventure differ for you, and how was it uh, to do this, you know, in a very different landscape, performing arts wise, to Australia?
1: Well, I think if you talked to eight year old Jacob and said, You're gonna be on Broadway Oof. and accept a Tony and win other awards and you know, live in New York, Manhattan and, and it'd be yeah, sure. What drugs are you on? But <laughs> sure enough, you know, I didn't get there dancing and singing. I got there through puppetry. And not that I didn't have my dancing, singing center stage moment. Oh. Um, oh. But I wasn't mic'd, so don't don't believe too much <laughs> of the press. Uh, but it was, it was fantastic. And there was a, a small moment thinking before we left, oh, am I going to be able to do this? Like, it's, it's a lot of pressure. It's, it's big. But Australians and the culture of Australians working in theatre is you know, second to none. And we got over there to Broadway and there was a few other, Danny, Leanne Viser was another... Australian performer who came over. It was like, yeah, we've got this. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is just another theater. One which has some amazing traditions and and you know, people love Broadway without a doubt, but it's a, certainly it's a musical theater kind of world and it launches actors careers into the stratosphere without a doubt. But, you know, it was incredible. I got my own dressing room. I was head of a department on Broadway. You no, know, I got to take my family and support them, and you no, know, got to accept a Tony Award wow. on behalf of CTC. And I tell you, when you're carrying a Tony at a party, all the famous people want to talk to you. Ah,
0: oh, love
1: it! <laughs> it was, you know that was pretty fun. I got a photo of Adam Driver who plays Kylo Ren, oh, nice. and um, sent that back to my kids. And then oh. uh, that created great kudos with my daughter, who's one of her friends in high school, is a big fan of Adam Driver. So she got to show him, show him that photo. So, you know, there's kudos moments. <laughs> but but it, was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, living in New York, it's such an iconic place. is as weird as America is. Um, but it was, it was really great fun. And there's some beautiful, interesting traditions on Broadway. I always think the beginning, the opening night was great, the award season was fantastic and closing night was great and the build-up and the lead-up to those moments because come opening night there's a tradition called this cloak. It's the ensemble cloak, I think it's called, whereas the ensemble member in the show who's done the most Broadway credits gets to wear this cloak and this badge of Kong gets sewed on this cloak. So you've got this big, heavy cloak with all the badges, logos of all the shows on Broadway. And there's wow. this big ceremony at before opening night where the whole cast and crew are in a circle and an ensemble member from who just got the cloak from the previous show that opened comes along with some Illuminatis from previous Broadway shows and present the cloak to our member, um. who then runs around the circle and high-fives everyone and goes and into every dressing room and gives a blessing while wearing the coat. And then I think Marty, who was one of the King's Company, had been in eight Broadway shows. A week later another show opened and he got to go and do that at another stage. So that was really weird and fun. Yeah. Quirky. And then Closing Night was, you know, the camaraderie and sometimes... You know, fights that happen within those big casts and just, just all that sort of energy. And all people have been living with each other 12 shows a week
0: for a 12.
1: Year. Yeah. Or was it, it was 10, and then peak time we were doing 12 shows a week.
0: That so is we're working six
1: days, six days a week essentially.
0: Oh my goodness. Um,
1: so all that, all that energy over that year and farewelling and partying on the closing night. And there's another tradition where you write a little message underneath your dressing room table to the next people, which you'd never known about. I'd never looked underneath the dressing room table and I looked under, there was all these messages That's from all so these past cool Broadway one. workers <laughs> that was and their Broadway show that they'd done. So you know it was pretty fun, and I got to go. Do a lot of media, which was fun, and go into CBS studios and do a morning program and you know, it, was, it was a different world.
0: It was. I'm really curious about this phrase that when I, when I went to New York, uh, people said to me, if you're not here for your job, there is not a place for you in New York. Like if you're there to, to work in Manhattan, what was yeah. the intensity of that space like?
1: Well, I, I certainly felt like once the show finished... There was no way I was going to stay got it and kind of job it out to get the next gig. It's you know I, I had such a gift to be able to be offered a job and go straight into Broadway and then leave again. you know that was like a dream run. who Why would you stay and then slum it till the next job and <laughs> how many how many puppetry jobs are on Broadway?
0: Wow! Because
1: essentially, well, there's a lot of puppets on Broadway, but they often will require heavy dancing track and singing track.
0: Yes. Mm. Which I'd like
1: to think I can do, but I clearly can't.
0: Well, there's always an opportunity, I'm sure.
1: Not, not, not to that level.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh, <laughs> taking yourself, you know, this is this is this is peak Jacob's dream. Uh, taking yourself back to your early days in the beers mm. with Terrapin. What did Terrapin teach you that you still use to that, that day in your practice?
1: Well, I think there were some warm-up exercises, which we still use today. Um, but the I think the main thing that I take away from my days in Terrapin was the, was the second show, no, third show that I did. We were doing a plot and it was a marionette show, adult piece, and I was... Up on the platform, and the marionettes had these three long, three meter long poles that we So we performed at height. And for the whole day, I was just hanging out up on the platform, looking down as they potted the lights and sound cues, etc. And it was a sunny day outside, but I was inside this dark theatrical world. And I just remember thinking, this is what I was doing as an eight year old. And now mm. I'm still doing it as an adult. So essentially, we're still playing and doing some weird shit and you know, fantastical <laughs> stuff. And in those three years that I kind of worked for Terrapin, you know, even the variety within that world and the joy and the play and the fun is kind of what I always strive for when you're working in theatre. Otherwise, why would you do it?
0: To so this um, dream to play, that, that sort of, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like
1: and I mentioned it before, the first show was the Ballerina Shadow. So there was four of us you know, crammed inside this beautiful replica uh, model of the Princess Theatre in Hobart with full fly tower and curtains and whatnot. And we, were all, we were in all black because we didn't want to be seen and there was corridor lighting where the puppeteers played in or the puppets played in. So that was really funny, You know, I, I was puppeteering with a puppeteer called Mel King who, you know, her, she's well endowed and her breasts were kind of pushing my ears forward. So we'd have a good old laugh about that. So, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, you got to get comfortable physically when you're a puppeteer because you end up in really weird poses when you're next to a puppeteer. and You, know, oh, yes. you might be going through legs and underarms. and
0: yes. Body I think if you haven't been farted on, you've not done forward. enough puppetry. If you haven't been farted no. on by somebody else, then you, exactly. yeah, you've got ways to go.
1: <laughs> Personal hygiene when puppeteering is a must.
0: Absolutely. Please yeah. bring deodorant, folks. Like, double up.
1: <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. It's... But I, I would say just just that, you know, the elements of story and, and the, the possibilities of what the puppets can do, but why you're using puppets as well, like, you know, really interrogate. That idea, or why are we using a puppet in this story? And do we need to use that puppet? Um, so that's something we always ask with our work at Lemony S is, you know, we're not just here for puppets' sake. It's always going to serve the story. And that way, I think you get a much richer theatrical experience.
0: Mm. You're going into this space of creating the Lemony S Puppet Lab, and there are so many different types of school and some are beginners introduction and sort of a more nurturing space. Others are like extremely high standard from the get go where you're expected to be an actor and and have some training and move into it. But I know so many of us, I I think for puppeteers who have really lacked from this education, so many of us are sick of being told, Oh, that show was really good. And we're actually looking (coughs) for real criticism and real feedback and real constructive uh, spaces where we can adapt and, and grow but I also think that can be quite brutal and I'm mm. curious as to you know when you're coming into this idea of approaching a set of actors who you're going to get to know over a, a series of months from an educator's point of view because now you're coming to that space of being an educator and having led workshops yourself you know how do you balance that feedback and how are you going to do that without tearing a person apart <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I, I jokingly often refer to the phrase a shit sandwich. Mm-hmm. So you give a great comment, deliver a little bit of that was really shit, and then you finish with a with a good comment. But um, really, that's not a philosophy I follow. But I, I think performing in any discipline—be it dancing, acting, puppetry—is a pretty. You put yourself out there. It's a pretty vulnerable place. Sure is. And I think puppetry attracts, you know, a different type of person as well, often an introverted person, someone who really loves drama and the idea of performing but doesn't want to be the focal point, Uh, which in a way is fantastic because you can but hide behind the puppet and achieve so much more than you think you could have achieved. Uh, I really as a sort of a concept is always believe there's no right or wrong. Mm. So always believe that people can suggest ideas and not feel like, oh, that's a shit, or even go, yeah, right, that's a shit idea. But it's good because it starts a conversation. So there really is no shit idea because it's a springboard to the next idea. So it's just the process of getting to the end point. So perhaps we set a task and send the students away to create a five-minute piece and they come back and they present something and, you know, within experience we'll probably see ways that you could present that story better. Without spelling it out for the students, I think we'll probably just sort of give them more challenges and to tease them out, well, how can you do that differently? Because sometimes the puppet didn't need to walk from A to B for five minutes, that was pretty boring. So how can we... Just get to AB quicker so we get to the action. What's the seed of the idea that you've worked on and how can we get there efficiently? I often talk when I'm directing puppeteers, puppeteer efficiently, Mm. which means physically. So hold it with the left hand so then we don't have to do a hand swap or whatever that is. But often, you know, action-wise as well, like what's the most efficient way and the way that makes sense to achieve this action and the story that you want to tell. So maybe you've worked out a whole bunch of choreography and Puppet's sat there breathing for 10 minutes and you've done this amazing walking, then you deliver the action. It's like, well, let's just get to the action and yeah. let's just achieve that. And and I, I think challenging and pushing people to think like that is... You know, people people really respond to to those ideas, and I also think when you're working as an ensemble for a period of time, over time trust develops, and people perhaps you can be a little bit more harsh or challenge someone a little deeper because they you develop trust with each other, and yeah, and it's also a balance of personalities as well. Like I may work with you, Pete, and. You might be feeling really vulnerable one day. So we know we don't push you. And, and I don't think the type of people, me and Sarah, we're not really interested in being, uh, what's that, Gullier, the clown doctor or the clown?
0: Gullier. Gullier. you shit, get off! Yeah, ring a bell.
1: We're not interested in that style of directing. It's, you know, we, we do performance out of empathy and passion and to tell, to make the world better, to give Mm. a little bit of hope is sort of our mantra when we're creating work. And, you know, that's, we want to, and we want to enjoy ourselves. Absolutely. While we're working, whether we're directing or performing or or writing, whatever it is.
0: So that's going to be quite a big venture. That's 10 months of your year this year is the the lab.
1: Yeah, and in a way it's, it's it's a chance for, like both me and Sarah have done lots of, run lots of workshops we've taught but we've never done anything this ambitious before so in a way it's going to be a little bit learning for us as well and and going in a little bit humble and learning from like even just reading the applications we're just thinking these people have amazing ideas (laughs) no we're going to be inspired of them just as much as they are of us so it's going to be this kind of Two way conversation all the way through. And hopefully, by the end of the lab, we're going to have, you know, 12, 13, 10, however many new puppet works well on the way to then present at the Melbourne Puppetry Festival in 23. So, so okay. excited. That's, that's amazing having 12 new works yeah. from puppeteers who one who haven't probably done their own puppet shows before or are just starting or, or are known for something else. And, yeah, that's pretty exciting. And, and hopefully they're works that can exist not just in our festival but then can launch to other festivals. That, that's, that's one of the big aims is to create artists who, you know, have ambition and know how to produce their works
0: to go further that's it I think producing your own work is something it's elusive for so many of us and I, I find that especially for puppet people we're really hard we're really we really suck to be honest at promoting your own stuff uh, because mm. I feel like that that same personality that is not wanting to be the center of attention or focus can also sometimes be a bit of a saboteur of of not wanting to find that that sense of success for themselves and yeah, I, I think that's the the big one is that you're creating a space where new work will be emerging and thus a whole kind of generation of puppeteers.
1: Oh. Hopefully. And that, that's sort of what we're, what sort of inspired us to do the lab is because we were, we grew up as artists when there were there was a funded puppet company in Melbourne and you know we we're on the on the sort of tail wings of handspan, there were there were avenues to find training there was the puppet school at victoria um, vca so there were places to go but now there's there's very little so we were wanting to kind of just fill that vacuum a little and try to you know show pathways for younger people mid-career people of how to kind of go forward because there's a lot of opportunity in puppetry
0: there is we need to really remind ourselves of that
1: mm. and i also think just t- touching on that comment you made that we're not very good at promoting ourselves. Something that I found interesting from my experience in America is they're so good at promoting themselves. Yeah. you know They will sing their own praises like it's a libertarian <laughs> kind of individual-based culture. Opposite to Australia, whereas we're like, we'll put ourselves down, we'll have imposter syndrome.
0: Oh, tons of it.
1: For days. Whereas I really want to I think we need to own our skill, own our expertise. And like myself and Sarah, we're, we're closing in on 50 and working in the industry for 25 years. And, you know, we've got to own our expertise in that and yeah. own our, our place in this community. And not to say that we're up ourselves, but with that comes humility. And we we want to share that and create and foster that attitude, I think, in younger performers like... You know, and, and talk younger performers up. So,
0: and, and I you know, guess you—you you really are. You're stepping up to that role. You are. That, that is exactly what the school is doing. And, and it's not just us. So we're inviting,
1: you know, people from our industry in once a month into the lab to kind of talk to people, to run a workshop, to talk about their career. So, so you can see that there's a ecology, a community beyond just your own living room. Mm. that, oh, there's a company in Perth, there's a Terrapin, there's opportunities overseas. And so we're hoping that um, the world opens up a little bit more for the participants.
0: That's it. Uh, There's so much community in puppetry, but to be in a physical space with people who just want to do what you do, especially uh, people who are of a similar age or at a point in their career, that is the same I don't think I've seen that since I moved to Melbourne. It's it's you know, that's that's two <laughs> yeah. years. That's two years yesterday. So I'm so excited. But apart from the and and in addition, I imagine, to the lab, what else is happening for you in the next in the next little while?
1: Well, we're making two new shows with Lemon One which will premiere next year. And we got commissioned by a council. Forgive me, I've forgotten the which council, but we're creating a taking this opportunity to create a small kind of two-hander children's piece for schools. So, you know, with the thought of hiring younger aspiring puppeteers to go off and do a school tour, because that's something that both me and Sarah did when we were younger in our 20s and early 30s, was you would go on a six-month school tour. And again, that is like an apprenticeship where you're doing the same show, repeating it three times a day sometimes. And learning how to respond to a live audience, learning, you know, just honing your craft as the puppeteer, learning how to tour a show, what it's like to be on the road for six months or three months or whatever it is. So trying to, you know, create those possibilities for people, that's one of the aims for this year. And we're just trying to tie it all back into the that. But then, of course, the bluey juggernaut is steamrolling on so, with the American tour starting up later in the year.
0: American tour.
1: Yeah, well that's they, they, they booked a twelve month tour, which I'll kind of bed in and come back and forth from and and again, the hope is to train puppeteers that suddenly will have an opportunity because that's going to be a huge tour and and a tough tour as well. So you know cars will come and go from that. so you know we we need puppeteers to. There, ready.
0: I mean, in your experience, what is it like to tour? You know, I love touring,
1: absolutely. I've always loved touring, but I've always loved traveling ever since as a kid. My parents broke up one, my dad lived in Sydney, my mum in Newcastle. So, one, there was traveling back and forth. I always found that really exciting to go to a different place in a different city and got to go overseas a couple of times as a kid. So, which, and as soon as I left school, I was 17 finished year 12, and I went straight to Europe for 12 months to travel and then spent the next five years coming back and forth, Europe, Asia, India, America, Canada. You know, just I've always loved travelling mm. and I did it sort of with no money. So now touring work and going into a city or a place with a work and, and presenting, you, you go there with purpose and particularly if, if you're bedding down for like a week, you get to kind of absorb a little bit of the culture of the city you're in or if it's for longer or if it's just a night, it's, you know, it, it's it's a fun. I've always loved it. It's not for everyone. Other people really struggle with it, but and sometimes it's better for younger people, but it's so much fun.
0: Unreal. Yeah. The big question, mm. who are your heroes in puppetry, especially your contemporary heroes? Who are you grateful for having in your time as a puppeteer, and who are the names that we should know?
1: Mm, this is a tough one because I, I think of I'm not I'm not a um, a scholar on puppetry, so it's someone like Ronnie, yeah, dear Ronnie Burkett, who is has a library of puppeteers and knows so much. He nerds out on puppetry when he's not performing. Well, I'm the opposite. I nerd out on other things. But, like, certainly meeting Sarah and and working and forming a company would certainly be one of them, without a doubt. And working with Caravan, the first overseas tour I did, working with um, Rod Primrose, who was part of that show, who was one of the founding members of Handspring, Learned a lot from him in particular, just being around someone like that who was probably in his late 50s, early 60s when he was doing that tour. Wow. And with a wealth of experience in TV, movie, theatre. So And and just coming from Terrapin, which also had a rich tradition to its puppetry and working often not just puppeteers but lighting designers. So Phil Lethlane, who again was a founding member of Handspan, lit all the Terrapin shows that I worked with and a couple of other shows outside of Terrapin. So, you know, just being around people like that who have a wealth of knowledge. Peter Wilson got to work with Peter on Kong and got to... No, I didn't do the puppetry school at VCA. I worked with him while I was there and and I'm having a cup of tea with him tomorrow, in fact.
0: Um, So... Time I said hi.
1: (laughs) Yes, I will. But, you know, it's... And just every time we put on a puppet festival, which is, we've done three of them now, and me and Sarah said this time last year, this is the last time we're doing this because, you know, running a festival on a shoestring is always a challenge. Mm -hmm. But just when you do it and you see the community of the people that come together and not just the puppet performers and the artists but also the audiences, you just think, oh, it's, it's fantastic. So, we're, of course, we're doing it again. Yeah. And we've just got to make made it a little bit bigger, haven't we? So <laughs> bigger but within the same size, staying with La Mama, staying in that world and just branching it out in a little bit more in that community of Carlton.
0: But also, I think, calling upon your community to bring that support because I feel like definitely with the COVID situation, you had to do it pretty much with the, a shoestring amount of people.
1: Oh, Incredible. as
0: well as budget, you know. So yeah. hopefully you've got that rallying that will happen this time around as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. Well, I think we got it last time in a way. Like Sarah spoke about that small miracle window that we managed to mm-hmm. put on a festival during two COVID lockdowns. But, yeah, like the people who managed to come and to see work and to perform work, you know, the, the gratitude it was palpable.
0: As a theatre maker, would you say, if I was to extend the question to not your heroes in puppetry, but your heroes as a theatre maker, would you add anyone to this list?
1: Mm. Look, honestly, I think every time I make a show, I love working with the people I work with, like Christian Leavesley from Arena, Gavin Robbins, who worked on King Kong as well, uh, Leanne Visor, who worked on King Kong, you just... When you're working with quality people, Tamara Roos, who we work with a lot here, and even on Bluey with Rosemary Myers and the Windmill team, we've got such a rich vein of incredible talent in Australia. It's hard to sort of say any one person. But I suppose, and also we are in Sydney and caught up with Ronnie Burkett and, you know, went out and had beers till midnight and got... Crazy drunk, and this is all before a pandemic hit and you know just quality people, yeah, theatre people. It's they're they're a different breed and it's it's wouldn't want it any other way.
0: We're out of time, Jacob. Thanks so much for talking sock with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. You can find Jacob at Lemony S Puppet Theatre on Instagram and ww.lemony s dot forward slash. Thanks for listening with us today, and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Alex Joy, that puppet guy. We'll talk sock again soon. Thank you, Jacob.
1: Thank you, Alex. It's
0: been great fun. Woohoo! Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each episode we post a series of stories and questions related to our guests. Follow us on Instagram at OneOrange Sock Productions, or subscribe to us on YouTube at One Orange Sock. You can also find our episode blog at oneorangesock.com. Our title music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast could not be possible. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Sock.